Good morning, good morning. It's great to see everybody. Welcome to Gateway Baptist Church. For those watching us online, we're so happy you're able to join us in worship this morning. Just got a few of announcements to let you know what's going on in the life of our body and some reminders of some things we mentioned last week. Today at 4.30, um, we have our every other week prayer time here in the sanctuary. 4.30 here in the sanctuary. That'll give you plenty of time to get home for the Super Bowl. Give the Lord some time, and then you go home and watch some... Some football and eat some good grubs. So, but that's here at 4:30, and Greg and Cecilia Till will be leading it up uh, today here in the sanctuary this afternoon. Alicia Young was up here last week and mentioned a great opportunity we have to serve the Capitol Heights Middle School that we have partnered with for many, many years. Um, it's an opportunity to provide lunch for the teachers on Valentine's Day. But we also want to do a side thing of that, which I think is even probably more important, is for us to be able to bless them with encouragement. We have some note cards in the office. You can't miss them when you walk in that we would like to encourage you to write some prayers on, maybe a scripture verse, word of encouragement. There's still time to do that today. Um, we would ask you to do it after church today if you could, um, because we're trying to get those obviously there by midweek uh, when they provide the lunch on Valentine's Day. So just a great opportunity to be able to bless them. You can also go online and bless them with some finances to help pay for this meal. Um, you can go in and mark that if you want to um, give some money, financial resources toward that. Also, Wednesday evening activities are continuing along, and we're having a wonderful time as we get together here on Wednesday nights to share in community some wonderful Bible studies with uh, men, women, couples, the kids, the youth, everybody. It's not too late to join. So if you've been visiting with us, we're so happy you're here, and you'd like to plug in a little deeper and to be able to get to meet some new folks and just to get more discipleship. Wednesday nights is a wonderful opportunity to do that, and we will be meeting this Wednesday um, on Valentine's Day. So work it out as you see fit, husbands, wives, dates, whatever it is, um, but we are going to be here this Wednesday night. And lastly, men, to be preparing again. Um, we're just so blessed. First, I want to recognize, Lord, um, I just want to recognize, and we are so blessed to have our deacon, Mike Presley. Um, he has been so faithful. He leads the men's ministry. He is providing wonderful opportunities for you guys. He and Grady, they talk, they get together. And so it's just a wonderful, we just appreciate you, Mike. Thank you for being so faithful to do that, to give guys an opportunity to uh, just get together and be together. And so we have another opportunity for you guys. There's going to be an overnight backpacking trip to the Sipsy Wilderness, a beautiful area of northwest Alabama. Uh, I, I love how Grady puts a moderate hike. <laughs> this guy can hike. You will not be able to keep up with Grady. But he calls it a moderate hike. So it's about six miles total, relatively flat, but it's open to men in the church and any boys five years old and up. Their dads are welcome to bring their sons. And that's going to be March 15th and 16th, as you can see on the slide, and uh, Friday to Saturday. Space is limited. Uh, they have a max of 20 individuals, 20 boys or guys on this trip, so you can sign up soon, and the details will be on the website this week for you to be able to register. So again, uh, take advantage of that wonderful opportunity, guys, to get together. All right, well, let's stand before the Lord. Excited. We have an opportunity to worship him today through song. I just want to read a few scriptures over us. We prepare our hearts to sing to the Lord. I'm reading from Psalm chapter 62, verses 5 through 8. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. O oh God, rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him, for God is a refuge for us. Let's worship our rock and salvation this morning.
that my Redeemer lives, what hope the sweet assurance gives, that he who gave his life for me arose with healing in his wings. He lives, the tomb is empty still, redemption's promise Condemnation now remains. The stone of death is rolled away. i 
reaches of heaven. Reaches of heaven, sorry heights, lights of the evening, dancing in silent skies, brilliance of morning, breaking day.
me from the raging sea And I am safe on the solid ground The Lord is my salvation
testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. Lord, we just thank you for the precious gift of your word. We thank you especially for the word made flesh who dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten. And Lord, as we have just sung of your great salvation life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we we just worship you. We bow down before you, and, and we proclaim together as a body this morning that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's in, even as we've sung, Lord, and, and as I know in this church today, there are those who are walking in what seems like the winter, Lord, in the darkness. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit today those hearts. Lord, your spirit today would encourage their eyes to see that the spring will come. And Lord, that the morning will come. Thank you, God, that you are our sustainer. God, we need you. Thank you that you are our refuge and our fortress, our God, in whom we trust. Lord, we just thank you this morning for the work you're doing here at Gateway. We thank you for the youth that you've blessed this church with. Lord, that, uh, Lord, are growing in their faith. Lord, we just continue to pray, God, that they would be the, the next piece of a godly generation. Lord, it just continues to worship you, continues to, to share the love of Christ with those around them. Lord, we just pray for our leaders, Lord, and the parents, Lord, that you would, Lord, give them wisdom and insight as they walk with and disciple these young people. Lord, we pray in our community for John Halbrick, who leads the Mixed Text Church here in town in Highland Gardens. Lord, just pray that you encourage his heart. Lord, just pray that that church would be growing, and Lord, that the Mixed people would be loving you in this place. Lord, we lift up the First Choice Women's Medical Center, and Bethany Garth, who directs that, Lord, and just, just pray, Lord, as they minister to women who find themselves in unplanned pregnancies, Lord, minister the hope of the gospel, God, that you would save these women, Lord, that they would come to know you, Lord, and give life, Lord, to these babies in their womb, Lord, we're just grateful for this ministry, and pray your blessing over that, Lord, we pray across the world as we pray for Lance and Holly, who are missionaries for Jesus' Life Baptist Church in Santiago, Chile, Lord, who have just experienced a lot of rough things recently that they're walking through. I pray encouragement for their hearts, Lord, for their church, Lord, as they continue to minister in that place. Lord, we just thank you that here at Gateway, Lord, you have blessed us. Lord, you've been Jehovah Jireh, our great provider in every way, Lord, and that we lack 
for nothing here. We just pray we would be good stewards of all that you've blessed us with here. Lord, we continue to pray for our pastor, Grady. Lord, as he comes this morning, and just pray your blessing over him. Lord, your grace upon grace would fill his heart. Lord, that Lord, he would just walk faithfully before you. Thank you for, Lord, the time and energy he puts in, Lord, to prepare to teach us each week. I pray today, God, you'd fill him with your spirit as he comes. Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would actually open our hearts to receive and believe that which we hear today. And Lord, we just commit all of this to you, Lord, for your glory, for our greatest joy. We pray in Jesus' name. They have a lot of energy this morning. Boys and girls, have fun with Pastor CJ this morning. I want all you guys to find Genesis chapter 3 in your copy of God's Word. So all the boys and girls on the move, find Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible app or in your copy of God's Word. Friends, today we come to the end of chapter 3. So yes, we made it through the first three chapters of Genesis. only taking us 24 weeks to get through these chapters, but we are making progress on that. As we come to the end of Genesis 3 today, we come to the final account of what happens within the Garden of Eden. We come to the end of what we see taking place in the Garden of Eden, this special place of perfection, the special place of abundance that God made and put His image bearers in. And so today we're going to come to the end of Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24, and we'll see the last thing that happened in Eden, in the Garden of Eden. Now let me remind you where we are in our study of Genesis. If you're visiting with us today so you know where we are as we're walking through, verse by verse, through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We've seen already Adam and Eve's sin. We've seen Adam and Eve choose their own way instead of God's way. We've seen their rebellion against God. And we've seen that God deals with sin, and so we saw the terrifying judgments that God makes on sin. But then last week, we saw this really surprising response of mankind in faith. Though they've, the Adam and Eve have heard the judgments of God and heard these terrors, they now respond in faith. They now respond believing in the promises of God. They now respond trusting in God's word. They now respond in faith. And then last week, we saw the surprising response of God, the surprising response of mercy, of killing these innocent animals before Adam and Eve to cover them with these carefully crafted clothing that God had made from the animal skins to protect Adam and Eve in the now hostile earth, but also to show them a picture and to show us on the other side of the cross how God would use a sacrifice to deal with his people's sin. And friends, as we think about that incredible act of mercy of God, that incredible repentance and faith we see in Adam and Eve's life, there's a warning that we need that we come to once again today. Now, it's not the first time we've seen this. We saw this when we talked about the judgments of God, but this text brings us back to this truth we need because, friends, there's a wrong thinking that permeates Christianity today that says, if I'm forgiven of my sins, the consequences go away. And so we just, again, last week we saw this incredible act of repentance and faith where Adam is now trusting in God and no longer doubting and believing in God and his word. And we see God do the sacrifice for them, pointing them ultimately to what Christ would do. But that did not mean that all the consequences go away. Friends, we often have this thinking that if I confess my sins to God, I hope he's going to make all the problems related to my sins Vanished, Or we have this wrong expectation. If I confess my sins to the person I wrong, I hope they're going to tell me it's all okay and everything goes back to when we pretend nothing ever happened. But friends, forgiveness does not nullify the earthly consequences 
for our sin. And that's where this text is so helpful for us today. It flows straight off this declaration of Adam's faith, straight off the mercy of God. It brings us to perhaps one of the greatest consequences that Adam and Eve now face for their sin. So as we look at verses, chapter 3, verses 22 to 24 this morning, look for what is the consequences of their sin. There's one major consequence here, and it has profound implications for their life. But as I say so often week after week in this, where is the hope here, friends? This is not just a historical account, though it is that. There's hope here. There's hope for Adam and Eve and what God does here. And friends, there's so much hope for you and I in this text. So what's the tragic consequence of sin, but also, friends, what is the hope? So Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm reading out the English Standard Version, starting in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil. Now lest he take at, reach out his hand and take also with the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man in the east of the garden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your unchanging word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. And Lord, as we come to this text of really the pain and the consequences of sin, Lord, I pray you'd use it to wake up all of our hearts to see the danger of sin in our own lives. Would you also let this text, Lord, drive us to see the hope there is and see your great mercy that we can run to. So use this text, use your word as only you can, Lord, to bring conviction to sin, to bring hope, to bring encouragement, to do whatever you know each of our hearts need done in them today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, friends, our text starts here with a reminder of Adam's sin. Go back to verse 22 here. Then the Lord God said, now just pause right here. This is the covenant name of God we've seen over and over in Genesis. This is Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh, the creator God, the all-powerful God who speaks in the world, comes into existence. This is also Yahweh. This is the God who is the covenant God who relates to his people. Yahweh Elohim, the powerful covenant-keeping God. And we get a glimpse of a conversation he has. Then the Lord God said, now let me just pause right there. Realize God is not saying this to humanity. This is a conversation God is having with himself. This is the triune God talking together. This is the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit having a conversation. And God in his grace gives us a glimpse of what the Godhead is talking about here. Now what is God talking about? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're talking about Adam's sin. Look back in verse 22. Then Yahweh Elohim said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. God says God is, that Adam and Eve have become like God. Now, what does that mean? Now, think back to what we saw when they first ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowing good and evil, I told you back then, was, means all knowledge, means all things. So when Adam and Eve ate, they were sinning in two ways. They were sinning because they wanted more knowledge than God had given them. They were not content with the revelation God had given them. They wanted to be more like God. They wanted more. They wanted to have God-like knowledge. But second of all, they wanted moral authority. They didn't want God to be the one to say this is right and this is wrong. They wanted to have that God-like determination of what was right and wrong for themselves. And so God says that Adam and Eve have now tried to become like God with God-like knowledge and with a God-like moral authority. Now, I love how John Piper describes their sin here, just the way he can captivate what they're doing here and bring it to our own hearts. He says this, man has chosen the way of the prodigal son. He does not want to stay under his father's authority. 
He wants to decide for himself what is good and bad. The essence of the fall and the essence of our depraved heart and of all its sin is the desire not to be dependent upon God. This is a desire not to be dependent upon God. Adam and Eve did not want to be dependent on God. They wanted to be God. They wanted to have God's knowledge. They wanted to have the moral authority for themselves. Piper continues, And the other side of the same coin is the desire to substitute ourselves for God and to get the flickering glory and the puny sense of power that comes from self-reliance, self-confidence, and self-determination. We want that puny sense of power that comes from self-reliance, self-confidence, and self-determination. All our sins flow from our inborn unwillingness to be like children and to trust our Heavenly Father to decide what is good for us and what is bad for us. And so here in verse 22, we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having a conversation about Adam's rejection of God's revelation, of Adam's rejection of God's moral standard, and Adam and Eve's self-reliance, their self-confidence, and their self-determination that they now want. Now, friends, before we go on to see how God responds to that sin, let me just remind us, I am so much like Adam and Eve, and you are also. We so often fail to trust that God has given us enough revelation in his word, and we want more. We so often fail to follow his will, and we want to decide for ourselves, oh, that's okay or that's not okay. We want to be our moral authority. And like Piper said, we want to be self-reliant, self-confident, and self-determined. And so, friends, in so many ways, each and every day, you and I are doing the exact same thing that our first parents did, that Adam and Eve first did. We're not trusting the revelation God has given us, and we're wanting to become our own moral authority. So what is the consequence of this sin for Adam and Eve? Now, there's one major consequence we just read, but it's got three massive implications for their life. So start with the major consequence and look at how that shaped their life now. And their major consequence, friends, is they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. They were expelled. They were kicked out from this place of perfection from the Garden of Eden. Now, this is so serious, God repeats this twice here with two different verbs. So again, when you were a child and your parents told you something and said it again but said it a slightly different way, you knew you were really in trouble, right? You knew you really had to listen up. And God does that here. He gives two different verbs and says it two different ways to drive home this truth of what's happening. Start with verse 23 here. Therefore, because they've sinned, they've eaten this tree of knowledge, good and evil. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. Now, this Hebrew word for being sent out here is the Hebrew word salah. It's the same word that will be used later of Abraham sending Ishmael away when he wanted to focus on his own promised one that was to come, his own son. This is a word of being cut off. This is a word of being banished from something. And if that's not clear enough for us, then in verse 24, God says, he drove out the man. Now to this word drive out in the Hebrews garage, this is used of God's exile of Cain after Cain murders his brother. This is used of Sarah telling Abraham, get rid of Hagar, get rid of Ishmael. They're a threat to my son. This is a super strong word. This is a language of divorce. This is a language of dispossession of a person, of a thing, or permanently getting rid of it from a place or from your life. So here you have the holy, sovereign God doubly resolving to do something here, to Salah, to send Adam and Eve out, to Garash, to exile them, to drive them out from the Garden of Eden. This is showing us the seriousness that this is what God has ordained would happen and nothing can stop this from happening. So that's the consequence of their sin. They're driven out, they're sent out, they're expelled from the Garden, but that now has three massively significant consequences to their life. First of all, This means they will now have pain and hardships throughout the rest of their life. 
They will now have pain and hardships the rest of their life. Now, this is not new. If you were with us when we were studying through the judgments, we already saw this coming. Because all throughout the judgments, we saw this thing that life's blessings now become challenging. And that truth is repeated here for us in verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, notice to work the ground from which he was taken. Outside the garden, Adam will still work, but his labors will be hard. He will have toil, he'll have sweat, he'll have hardships. He and his wife and the generations to follow will have lives full of pain. Now to grasp how much has changed this, think back to what happened before. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 to 12. Remember what it was like before the fall. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and is good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Adam didn't have to have a sprinkler system, right? God just watered it all. And there it divided and became four rivers. Verse 11, the name of the first of the Pishon is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And it keeps going there. And the gold of that land is good. The Dillium and Onyx stone are there. So you have this perfect garden where Adam didn't have to break a sweat to work. He was able to tend it and care for it, but everything was just water. There's gold, there's stones, the trees just bore fruit. There were no weeds, there were no thorns. It was a place of absolute ease and joy and perfection, and that is now forever gone. For Adam, for Eve, and for all the generations that follow, life will now be hard. It will now be painful in so many ways. What we experienced became the new normal for life and will be until Jesus comes back. The psalmist describes this in some very poetic and just really descriptive ways in Psalm 22, 14 to 15. This is what our lives are like now in Psalm 22. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. Now, that just means a broken clay pot. This is broken clay. It's not a word we use every day. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. That is not a picture of the Garden of Eden. As a picture of life in this broken world, then it'll be like this. It was that since the expulsion reading. It'll be this way until Jesus returns. Now, this drives us to realize something very significant here, friends. In our culture, there's such a longing to want to return to Eden. So much hoping and so much striving in our lives to try to get back to Eden. We're so quick to put our hope in, our, in medicine to try to stop pain and disease. We're so much hope, so quick to put our hope in our finances to try to just feel like life is secure. So much hope in our technology is going to make our life easier. If I get the newest piece of technology, the newest device from my home, then life will just become so much something I can get back to Eden. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. I love tinkering with technology. I'm so grateful for medical care. I'm so grateful for financial provision. Those are not bad things, but the problem is we hope in them and we get our, this expectation that somehow with just the right medical care and just the right education, just the right financial planning, just the right technology piece in our home, we can somehow get back to Eden. We can somehow get back to this utopia. And then we act surprised when the medicine doesn't fix the problem. We act surprised when that new appliance doesn't make our lives any easier, when that new phone breaks, whatever happens. We act surprised that life is full of pain. Friends, we will not be able to go back to Eden, no matter how hard we try. And so Adam and Eve's first significant implication in being kicked out of the Garden of Eden that affects us as a life is now hard. Life is now full of pain. But there's a second consequence as well of this expulsion. That means death is now certain. Again, this is not new. We've seen this before, that death is now certain. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, this is exactly what God said would happen. But in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, we talked about that before, you will surely die. God keeps his promises. So how does God bring about the death of Adam and Eve? He's a sovereign God. He could have struck them dead right there. 
but he did not. Look at how he brings about their certain death. Go back to verses 22 and 23 this morning. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of the life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of, from the garden of Eden. This is how God brings about their certain death. Now, remember, the garden had this tree of life in it. We saw it back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, when God first told us about the garden. In Genesis 2, 9, we see the tree for the first time there. Do we have Genesis 2, 9? There you go. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you had these two trees side by side in the garden. One of them was the one that was forbidden. It was that tree of knowledge we were just talking about. There's also next to it this tree of life. Now, we mentioned this in passing some months ago when we started this, and we're back in Genesis 2. But when God made man, man was not inherently immortal. Man was dependent upon God for immortality. We were not created on our own to be able to sustain immortality and live forever. So God put this special tree in the garden to sustain life. Now, no, the Bible does not tell us how that worked, okay? That's not something that God has revealed to us. But God has revealed to us that he has put a tree there to sustain human life so that those lives of people around that tree, however they got the benefit God ordained through it, would become immortal during that time. As long as they had access to the tree, they would not die. But God has now promised that death is a result of their sin. So how does God bring about their death? Not an immediate day one death. God keeps his promise, but he casts them out of the garden where they do not have access to the tree that God had used to sustain their lives. He removes access to the tree. Again, back to the end of verse 22. Lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden. So Adam and Eve are kicked out from the garden. They're going to now have pain in life. They're now going to not be able to have access to the tree of life, so they will have a certain death. But there's one more tragic consequence of this expulsion from the garden. It's the most horrific of all of them. They now have broken fellowship with God. Even worse than the pain, even worse than the certain death, they now have broken fellowship with God. Again, think back to October. I know that seems like a long, long time ago to when we saw the perfection of the garden. We saw it was a place where God met all their needs. God met their physical needs. We saw God met their emotional needs. We're given this garden of beauty. We saw that God met their spiritual needs as well. So hone in on that for just a minute. That God in the Garden of Eden was a place to meet the spiritual needs of his people. The Garden of Eden was the first sanctuary in Scripture. It was the first special place to experience God's presence. And so the major emphasis of Eden was not on the food, not on the rivers. The major focus was on all the provisions so they could know God. I mentioned it back in October, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes the Garden of Eden by saying, there Adam speaks and walks with God as if they belong to one another. Before the fall, Adam and Eve could walk in the garden, speak and talk with God in a way that we cannot fathom. That's why even in the judgment accounts that we saw, when God comes to them, he does so as he normally did each day. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This was the normal occurrence for them in Eden. That as they walked through and just picked fruit and tended to the garden and ease and joy and peace, even more than that, they got to walk with God. They saw the face of God. They experienced the presence of God. They had a joy with God every single day. And now God kicks them out, expels them from the place where they found such intimacy and joy with God. They're now kicked out from the place where they could talk with God and hear his voice and walk with God in the garden. And not only are they cast out from that, God makes it to where they cannot 
come back. This was not, we're going to send you to your room for 10 minutes and come back and tell us what you did wrong. This is forever expulsion from this place of such joy in the Lord. So go back to verse 24 and look at how God blocks the way. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And the irony here is Adam and Eve were called to tend the garden, to work and to keep it, to guard the garden. And now the ones who are tasked with guarding the garden are guarded from even getting into the garden. God puts a flaming sword here. This represents his justice, that there's a very visible sign that the holy just God is not going to let them anywhere back near to his holy presence here. But he also puts a cherubim here. Now, what in the world is a cherubim? Now, it's going to be nothing like what you see on Valentine's cards this week, okay? The cherubim in the scripture are not little fat red guys sitting on top of a cloud. That's not what the cherubim are in scripture. They are angelic beings, that is true. And in fact, this is another first in scripture. This is the first time you see an angel in scripture. We're hitting lots of firsts. Here's the first, <coughs> excuse me, a first appearance, a revelation of an angel. But these are not your normal messenger angels. The cherubim have a very different appearance and a different function than your normal angels. The cherubim are a high and mighty order of angelic beings who serve around the throne of God. They appear more than 65 times in Scripture, every time they're associated with the throne of God. Now, perhaps one of the places we see them described the most is Ezekiel chapter 10. Look in Ezekiel 10, this vision of them. And I looked and behold on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim. There appeared above them something like a sapphire, an appearance like a throne. Verse 2, And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Verse 3, Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. Okay, so this is not just your normal angel that appears. These are very unique creatures, and their wings are so loud that you can hear them from the outer court to the inner court there. Now, a few verses later in Ezekiel 10, 20 and 21, these were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chebar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. Verse 21, each had four faces and each four wings underneath their wings, the likeness of human hands. So kids, if you want to get really creative and try to imagine this, four faces, four wings, the wings are so loud you can hear them in the outer courts, and then these human-like hands. These are the beings that serve around the throne of God. Now, friends, no, I do not have time to unpack Ezekiel's vision today. That will have to be a whole other sermon for another day. But the point here is the description this morning of what the cherubim are. And for you to see, they're always associated with the throne of God. And they're always described in terms of protecting the throne of God. They are guarding the throne of God. They are guarding access to the Holy One himself. So when God sends them to the garden... He could have said anything. He could have just left a flaming sword there. But he not only puts a flaming sword, he puts cherubim there. And what do the cherubim do? They're protecting his throne. They're protecting his sanctuary. They're stopping Adam and Eve's direct access to him. So the spiritual beings who guard the throne of God are now sent to the garden to make sure the former caretaker of the garden can never go back into that garden to where God's presence had been so fully known. So friends, realize something here. That means the expulsion from the garden is not just God protecting Adam from the tree. The expulsion from the garden is God protecting Adam from God himself. 
God sends him out to protect Adam from God himself. Though Adam is repentant and has shown faith, though God has given him clothing and shown that there is atonement available for his sin, Adam is still a sinner. Adam cannot go see God face to face as before without being utterly destroyed by the holiness of God. A holy God will judge sin, and so Adam cannot just march in the garden and pretend everything is okay without being utterly obliterated by a holy God. So God sends these special angels to guard the guard his throne to now guard the Garden of Eden. And Adam even experienced what Isaiah would later describe in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. They begin to feel this weight at this, this point. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Again, think about what Adam and Eve went through. They had walked with God. They had experienced the presence of God. And now their sins have separated them. They feel a separation they have never experienced before. One of the authors I read this week said it so well. He wrote, God is saying, you are not suitable for my presence. Out. I accept your repentance. I accept your faith. I cover you in my atonement. But you are not suitable for my presence. I am going to protect you from eternal hell. I'm going to secure you by throwing you out of the garden because you would do such danger to yourself. You are not suitable for the fullness of my presence. And so God sends the cherubim, these special angelic beings around the throne of God to now guard it so Adam can no longer walk back in the presence of God as they did before and then be damned forever because they encountered the holy God. That meant for the remainder of Adam's 930 years and the remainder of Eve's life as well, they never got to see God face to face again like they did in the garden. They never had that same intimacy and fellowship with God. All they could do was go to the gate and see the cherubim and the flaming sword. Now, it's a bit of speculation, but some of the scholars I read even think that's where Adam and Eve would come to do their sacrifices. Now, we have no way to know that. Some of the scholars speculate this would be the place they would come. This would be the place they would bring Cain and Abel to teach them about who God is and teach them about sacrifices. And whether or not that happened or not, we don't know. But we do know that God blocks the way to the sanctuary where his presence was more fully known. Now, there's a fascinating insight on this to help us understand what's happening here. Years and years later, when the tabernacle was built in the wilderness, and then when the temple was built, if you think through your Old Testament studies before Inside the temple, inside the temple was the most holy place, the holy of holies. And God's people couldn't just run into that holy of holies. There was a curtain that separated it from everything else. Because God is so holy, if a simple person ran into the holy of holies, they would be struck dead. Only the priest could go in there. And only after all those cleanings you see in Old Testament law, only with a blood sacrifice for a sin offering once a year on the Day of Atonement, only then could the priest go into the holy of holies. They were separated by a curtain. But do you know what was on the curtain when they made it? Exodus chapter 26, verses 31. Look at this. You should make a ve- These are instructions for the tabernacle. You should make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. It should be made with cherubim skillfully worked onto it. So even in the tabernacle, God put a reminder of Eden that I am a holy God and you can't just come blazing into my presence however you want with your sin I am a holy God and I will judge sin. You shall hang it, that curtain with a cherubim embroidered on it, on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And then in verse 13, you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. So the most holy place literally had cherubim woven into it to remind people that God guards his throne and sinful people can't run in to the throne of God. 
And when the priest did get to go in there once a year to make atonement, what did he see in there? Exodus chapter 25, verse 18 to 22. You shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. The mercy seat is where God would come and meet each year with the priest there. And you shall make two cherubim of gold and put them on the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat. You shall make the cherubim on its two ends. Verse 20. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another towards the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubim be. Verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give to you. Now watch this in verse 22 here. There I will meet with you. There, with the cherubim there is the reminder that God guards access to his throne. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim on the Ark of the Testament, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so all throughout the Old Testament, from the garden here, through the tabernacle, and through the temple, God had these reminders that sinful people cannot just run into God's presence. He is a holy God, and he has these spiritual beings, cherubim, who guard the holiness of his throne. So with that, if you go back to verse 24, he drove out the man into the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That intimate fellowship with God was going, and for hundreds of years on earth, they would never be able to talk to God like they did before. Now, friends, there's a huge lesson for Adam and Eve right there. There's a huge lesson for me and for you as well. And the lesson here for us is that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Satan lied to Adam and Eve. He lied to them about the character of God. He lied to them that their sin would not actually cause pain. He lied to them and told them their sin would be really good. In fact, he sold sin really well. He was a great marketer of sin. He made sin look so promising. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Remember what happened? The servant said to the woman, he will not surely die. He's questioning God. Now look at how he sells sin. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And friends, I want to remind us, Satan is still doing the same thing today. To me and to you. The Satan is still the father of lies, as Jesus called him in John, and he's still working to destroy people. First Peter chapter five, verse eight. We saw this several years ago in First Peter. First Peter five eight. What happens to Do we have it there? There you go. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If you are in Christ, Satan hates you. Just like he hated Adam and Eve, and he hates you because he hates God, and he hates God's glory. That's what we've seen from the fall of Satan in the beginning there. And so there's an enemy who is actively working to devour you. Now, he can do what he wants to do under the plan of God there. Most of the time, he's not going to appear as some ugly face and scare you in the middle of the night. He's going to whisper lies to you, particularly about your sin. And so perhaps for some of you this week, from perhaps many of us this week, Satan has been lying to us about our sin, just like he did to Adam and Eve. Saying things like, God doesn't really care what you do online. Perhaps he's nudging you to pursue some pleasure you know is sinful. Perhaps he's convincing you that you don't have to be generous or show hospitality or welcome people or share or help others. Perhaps he's telling you your anger is justified or those flirtations are harmless. We could go on and on, but I think you get the idea. That Satan still is lying to us, telling us our sin is not that bad. James Montgomery Boyce, a great pastor, wrote this about this text. He said, remember this, remember this account when sin beckons. The devil will call and say to you, come away with me and enjoy sin's pleasure. Nothing will come of it. No harm will be done. When you hear that voice, let your mind run back to God's portrait of Adam and Eve being driven from Eden in shame. Remember that the devil has been a liar from the beginning. 
Friends, sin always has consequences. And yes, God will forgive our sins, but it does not mean the consequences go away. For Adam and Eve, God forgave their sin, but they had pain, they had eventual death, and they had a broken fellowship with God. Now, friends, that's the hard news here. But back to the beginning, ask, is there hope here? Because we keep asking that throughout Genesis. And like we see in every text, there's a lot of hope here. In fact, there's two aspects of hope here for us, friends. First of all, there's hope for us in this life. Friends, you and I have a hope that Adam and Eve could only dream of because we're on this side of the cross. So let's think back to what I mentioned about the tabernacle and the temple. What did God put on that to remind people of the separation? But the cherubim on it, right? These images of these beings that guard his throne. But when Jesus died for our sins, what did God do with the curtain, with the cherubim on it, to separate his people from him? Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. What happens? And behold, the curtain, the curtain with the cherubim embroiled in gold on it. The, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. God ripped in a very powerful way literally ripped that curtain in the temple to show us that the way to him had been opened up because of what Christ did. We could never tear the curtain. Adam and Eve could never get back to those cherubim into Eden. People could not just run through into the Holy of Holies in the temple, and we can't just run into the presence of a holy God, but God did what we could not do. He ripped the curtain. Why? Because the perfect sacrifice had been paid. All those Old Testament sacrifices pointing to the coming Messiah had now been paid. Christ himself on the cross took my sin. If you're in Christ, he took your sin, and he, for, and he dealt with the punishment. No sin ever goes unpunished. No sin is forgiven. Only sinners are forgiven, not sin. And so if you're in Christ, your sin got put on Christ. He built, dealt the penalty that should have taken eternity for us to deal with, and all of his righteousness got put on us. And when that sacrifice was made, the curtain was ripped, and all now have faith in him can approach him directly without sacrifices, without priests, without having to go through the curtain. And one of the, the people I read this week, he said this, In Christ, we are no longer banished, but we are now accepted. In Christ, we are no longer banished like Adam and Eve were. We are now accepted. This is what 1 John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Friends, it's just a reminder. The only reason we have faith is not because we're smart, because God in His grace has given it to us. He's given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. That's not just knowing about him, but we can actually know him. The curtain's been torn. We are no longer banished. We are accepted, and we can now know him in a very personal, real, and intimate way. And that acceptance we have gives us an amazing access to him that Adam and Eve could only dream of going back to. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. I think we missed the wonder of this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now just pause right there. Adam and Eve could no longer draw near to the garden where God's presence was. They can no longer draw near to the presence of God in the garden. God had them banished from that. But in Christ now, we can draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We are no longer sent out. We are no longer driven out. We are no longer prevented from getting to God's throne. We are invited to boldly approach it and now talk to God because our punishment has already been dealt with and we are covered in Christ's righteousness. Yes, the penalties of sin or the pain of sin is still there. Yes, we will have a certain physical death, but now we have direct access to God. We have a hope that Adam and Eve could only long for in the Old Testament times once they were banished. There's one other source of hope for us as well, friends. There's the eternal hope for us also. Because what God did for Adam and Eve here, and he'll do for us, our eventual death, is actually an act of mercy of God. Go back to verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and know, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
So then we saw what God did with that. Death is the judgment, but death is also the hope here. It is also the release. Friends, do you realize if Adam and Eve had been allowed to live forever, they would have lived forever under the justice of God. They would live forever in pain and forever in brokenness. And so with a God-given faith that Adam then had, when he died at 930 years old, he was free from the bondage of this earthly life. He was free from the pain and the toil and the curse here. And he saw the Savior who could only long for to come and was able to be with God again. And so God did the ultimate act of mercy. He did not let Adam and Eve eat from the tree of life and live forever in their fallen, broken, wicked state. He said, let them have a death that would then bring them into his own presence. And friends, that's the same hope that we have today. Not that our life can be hard, not that we can get to eat in this life, but when we die, we get to see Jesus face to face. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Friends, the day is coming like Adam and Eve that we are freed from the sinful world. We are freed from our sinful tendencies and freed from our sinful bodies, and we get to see our Savior face to face and be with him forever. But friends, that is not the end, because whenever Jesus comes back, he's going to make all things new and all things right, and then we get resurrection bodies. We get things restored even better than Eden was. Revelation 22, we've read it before, but I want to take us back to that this morning again. The angels show me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And again, we're no longer cast out from this. In Christ, we get to go to this. Through the middle of the street of the city, also either side of the river, the tree of life. Friends, it comes back. The tree of life that they were banished from, it comes back in the new heavens and the new earth. And we get to experience it. The tree of life with us, not just one fruit now, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3, he carries on there. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God, the throne of God that the cherubim have been guarding and keeping sinful people from getting to, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. We will not be banished. We will have access to the throne of God. Verse 4 here. They will see his face. The very thing Adam and Eve were banished from, friends, we will get to be there with them one day, seeing his face again. Their names will be, and his name will be on their forehead. Friend, there is no going back to the Garden of Eden for us. There's no utopia we're going to find on this earth, but there's something that much better awaits us because God in his mercy is not letting us live eternally in these broken bodies on this broken earth. He's going to let us go to him in his perfect timing, and then one day he's going to return and make all things right with the tree of life and all this glory forever, forever with him. So let's bring all that together. Here's the truth. I hope you've already seen it in this last three verses of Genesis 3 this morning, but here's our main truth for this morning. It's simply this, friends. The inability to return to Eden reminds us of the seriousness of sin as well as the hope we have in eternity. Friends, we will never be able to go back to Eden. Adam and Eve couldn't, and you and I can't. No matter how hard we try, we will never gain utopia in this life. But that truth should remind us our sin is serious too. Adam and Eve's sin had consequences for them and for us still today. And friends, those temptations the enemy throws at you that he says are harmless will not only hurt you, they will hurt your children, they will hurt your neighbors, they will hurt your church, they will hurt your job, they will hurt your friend. Your temptations are not harmless. See sin for what it is. But friends, also find hope. This text drives us to go, we can't go back to Eden, but we can long for eternity. The inability to return to Eden reminds us of the seriousness of sin as well as the hope we have in eternity. I've got three questions for you in light of that. Number one, friends, we cannot go back to Eden, but are we trying? 
Are we trying to go back to Eden? Again, it's not wrong to work hard in this life to try to overcome the pain of life. It's not wrong to seek medical care. It's not wrong to try to get the newest appliance to help us with things. There's nothing sinful in that. But the problem is, are we hoping in those things? Are we hoping in God? Are we trying to make our life like Eden now? Are we longing for the new heavens and this earth? Friends, are we living like we're trying to get back to Eden? Second question. Sin is deceptive. And Satan is working to destroy me and working to destroy you. Are we aware of the seriousness of our sin? Not are we aware of the seriousness of other people's sin. We're all pretty aware of the seriousness of other people's sin, right? That's easy to do. But are we aware of the seriousness of our own sin in our own heart? Do we know that even in the last few days, Satan has lied to us? Are we aware of his schemes? Are we aware of those weak points where we need God's grace and we need the help of other people to walk with, the God, with, to walk with God? Are we resisting those sins in our own life or are we justifying them? So are we try, one, are we trying to live like this is Eden? Friends, are we aware of our sin? But last question, life is going to be full of pain. It's not our home. Are we living for eternity? Are we living with eternity in view? Friends, it is so hard to do that. We are all so prone to live for the here and now and to try to make this life a utopia. But are we longing for eternity when we have access to the tree of life, when we see the glory of God, when we have the joy eternally in his presence with all of the saints who have gone before? Are we living for that? Are we living like this is our home? Would you pray with me? Father God, we are thankful for your grace, your grace that has pursued us in our sin, your grace that has forgiven us of our sin, your grace that sustains us and is growing us. And Lord, thank you for your kindness revealing to us texts like Genesis 3 to show us the painful consequences of sin. And Lord, I pray for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters. Lord, you know how easily every single one of us is deceived by sin. How every single one of us is so prone to want to minimize our own sin and maximize other sin. Lord, would you give each one of us grace this week to see how dangerous our sin is, to be quick to flee from that sin and temptation, to be quick to bring it to the light, to confess it to you, to confess it to others, to seek help where we need help. Lord, would you let us not keep justifying our sinful ways, but run to you and to others for help. Lord, you also know how quickly we can live for the things of this world. Lord, how we want this to be Eden, how we want to go back to Eden instead of turning our focus to what is still to come. And so, God, we ask for much grace this week that you would remind us of eternity. You would remind us of that time when the new heavens and new earth come and when the tree of life is there and when we get to see your face and we get to worship around your throne for all eternity. Lord, help us not make everything about the temporalness of this life. Help us live, Lord, with eternity in view. Lord, we know we can't manufacture that. We can't do a checklist of things to make that. That is a heart change that we need you to work inside each one of us. So Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit and would your Holy Spirit this week convict us of sin where we need convicting? Would your Holy Spirit this week use your word to show us blind spots, to show us the enemy's schemes? And Lord, would you this week use your word as your Holy Spirit brings it alive to us to see eternity, to think about eternity, to be freed from living like this is everything here and now. So would you do what only you can do? Would you work in the hearts of your people to make us more like Christ, to make us more like you want us to be? And Lord, I'm very aware in a room this size, there are some in this room who do not yet believe these things, where they may be able to give all the right answers about what sin is and define it correctly and what forgiveness is and define it correctly. But Lord, they have never experienced the joy of the fullness of your redemption of not just knowing that there's sin and there's forgiveness, but actually experiencing your sweet, saving grace, your transforming grace. Lord, I pray for any in this room 
who do not know you in a personal way, who do not have the hope of eternity and the hope of seeing your face one day, Lord, would you be sending your Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin and their lostness and their need for a Savior? And Lord, would you use that to be drawing them to yourself and giving them faith, just like you gave faith to Adam after he had so turned on you. You gave him faith to believe in your word and believe in your promise. Lord, I pray you do that for any in this room or who do not know you yet. Lord, for all of us, may we find our hope and joy in you and not in the things of this world. Lord, change us, transform us, make us who you want us to be. We ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing about God, the ancient of days, the unchanging God who our hope is in.
song of you, us your people, saying we will trust in your name. When we confess so often, it's hard for us to do that. When we fail with that so often, give us much grace this week to trust in your name, to trust in your unchanging character, to trust in your faithfulness and your sovereignty, knowing that you are holding all things together. And may we rest in that truth this week. And may you give us much grace to think about eternity and hope in eternity this week. Would you do it, Lord, for your glory and for our joy? In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless your Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.